Well, good morning. Um, Whether you are worshiping in the fellowship hall, whether you are worshiping with us online or here in the sanctuary, my name is Bill. I'm the ministries pastor here at McLean Presbyterian, and it's wonderful to have you here this morning. We have been for the summer in a series that we have called Hungry for More. And the point has been to look at meals that Jesus has with men and women in the New Testament, certainly to learn what we would be taught out of them, but far more than that, asking God to wake up inside us a hunger for something more, something that frankly, food would never satisfy. And so this morning, we come to the last of these. We come to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to be starting in verse 6. If you're using a pew Bible or a Bible from the back in the fellowship hall, it's on page 1039. And we'll read from verses 6 to 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, a roar like the many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we come to this word now and we pray as we have all summer that you would teach us, but more than teach us, that you would wake something up inside us, that you would get something going inside us that is not satisfied with the things of this world and that is not satisfied with where we are, but is instead hungering to go deeper with you. Father, through your spirit working in our hearts, Make the blood of Jesus apparent to us in a way that will change who we are this morning. We pray you do it, and we pray you do it in his holy name. Amen. So let me tell you about one of my most spectacular evangelistic fails. So it was my junior year of college, and um, my school had fraternities and sororities, but they were really not a big deal. It was maybe 10% of the campus, if not 5 Instead, the social life where I went to school was centered around what they called eating clubs. And to conceive of an eating club, basically think of a frat or a sorority and then make it co-ed and give it a house about three times as big as the typical frat house. Um, The officers of the club would live there. Everybody else lived in student housing, but juniors and seniors would take their meals at the club. And at least while I was there, the club was the unquestioned center of the social life on campus. So I was at my eating club one February night. Um, Depending on who you count, it was either late at night or early in the morning. And there was a party going on downstairs like no other. And if you don't know this, it is certainly possible to go to those parties and not destroy your own morality. It's not easy, but it can be done. 
And so I'd been at the party. It was about 1 a.m., maybe a little later. And I'm an introvert. So I just wore out. And so at about 1 a.m., I went upstairs. And my eating club had these fireplaces that were wider than I can stretch and taller than I can stretch. And so I had this snowy night, and I had built this massive fire in this fireplace. And I settled into a leather sofa and sat there and thought, this is really pretty good. <laughs> now, at this point, one of my friends happens to come upstairs. His name was Andy. And Andy flops down on the sofa beside me and sits there for a second. And he goes, so, Bill. And I went, ooh, Andy. <laughs> you got going early tonight. And um, so Andy was a little bit lit, let's say that. And, um, and he goes, so, Bill. Yes, Andy. So you're a Christian, right? I said, well, yes, Andy, you know that. And he goes, okay. So that means you're going to go to heaven someday, right? I said, well, yes, Andy, I believe that's the case. He goes, "Uh, okay. So what's it going to be like? Well, um, honestly, Andy, I I don't really know. I mean, there's not that much. I mean, it's going to be wonderful. That's not what I asked you. What's it going to be like? Well, we're going to, um, it'll be forever and it'll be eternal and we'll be singing and worshiping God. And he goes, sing terrible songs that can never make it on the real radio forever? That sounds horrible. I'm going to go get another beer. And he walks off. Now, why did I fail so miserably in that moment? Now, I mean, it's not like I really think Andy would have remembered anything I would have said the next morning. But but why was it such an utter failure on my part? Because I had basically no understanding of heaven. And if we have no understanding of heaven, then we really have very little to say to the non-Christian who looks at us and says, why bother? Now, maybe even worse, if you can even say worse in this context, is if we have no doctrine of heaven... We don't really have any reason why, why, why we should push on. Why we should actually do what it is and be what it is and, and just finish the race to get there. Um, the great Yogi Berra said, if you don't know where you're going, it's a pretty good bet you're going to end up somewhere else. One of the dominant themes, one of the dominant images the New Testament and the Old even use for the Christian life is that of a race. And it's not a sprint, it's an endurance race. And I don't know about you, but I've been doing this long enough now to have seen a lot of people finish that race well and to also see a lot of people tap out. And y'all, I want to finish this thing well for however long God gives me. Um, Being a runner, our family lived for three years in Atlanta and there was a t-shirt that I got that just summarized Atlanta running perfectly. It said, heat, hills, and humidity. Welcome to Atlanta. That was Atlanta running. Now, before we got married, I mean, before we got married, before we had kids, Jill and I lived for two years in Orlando. Orlando's t-shirt would have had to have said, heat, humidity, and flat. Because roads in Orlando, and in Florida in general, by and large, go absolutely straight, because there's no reason to bother to make them turn. So you go straight until you run into a lake, you go around the lake, and then you pick up and go straight again. And the flat proved to be a lot harder than the hills. Because if you're pushing hard and you're running hard and you're going, you understand, I did almost all my miles in Orlando on Red Bug Lake Road. 
And it was so flat and so straight that I could do basically a 12-mile run without going around a curve. And when you're pushing hard and it's hot, it's easy. You start looking at your feet. And if you look at your feet when you're running, it's the kiss of death. And all you're thinking about then is how hot it is and how tired you are and how humid it is. And it'd be very, it was very hard to finish a run. You know what worked? It's when I looked up. We lived at the absolute western dead end of Red Bug Lake Road. And if I got my head back up and looked at home where I was going, way down there, usually, by the way, silhouetted with a Florida sunset, which was not so bad, that would get me there. That would get me home. And here's the point this morning. The point is, if we see where we're going, we'll have what it takes to get there. In theology speak, you call that the perseverance of the saints. But here's my version of it. If I know where I'm going, if we know where we're going, we'll actually press on until we make it. And so this morning, we're going to look at Revelation 19, really to ask the question, where are we going? And how will that inspire us to keep going, to get there? And as we do it, we might actually just learn something that would help us have an answer to non-Christians who say, why bother? So we're really going to look at just two things this morning out of Revelation 19. We're going to look at a wedding feast, and we're going to look at an invitation list. Wedding feast and invitation list. So first off, if you look at the passage, here's the amazing thing. Do you realize the Bible says that history ends in a party? Now, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, was a poet and a pastor, not an engineer. And so he packed the book full of pictures and images and metaphors, things that would encourage a suffering and persecuted church to press on and to finish the race well. And so John, as he writes, of all the things he could do here in Revelation 19, gives us a picture of heaven, and the picture of heaven he chooses to give us is a wedding feast, a wedding reception, a banquet. Why that one? Why that? Well, what would it have meant to John's audience? The wedding celebration would have been a time of joy, a time of dancing, a time of singing, a time of eating anything you wanted and as much as you could want, a time with plenty of wine, a time of absolute great joy that had been waited for for a long time. Now, it's almost impossible to overstate what that would have meant to them because remember, this is a people who often went to bed hungry. This is a people who often, when they went to sleep, were lightheaded because they didn't have what a body needs, where their stomach had all the hurts. This is a people who had not had food security. And so if you're looking for the best thing you can possibly say to them, you say it's an eternal feast after a wedding. You know what I should have said to my friend Andy? I should have said, you want to know what heaven's like? You think that bender you guys have got going on down there is something? You have no idea the party God has waiting for the people who follow him. The way John could say that is to say it's like an eternal wedding feast. Now I'm also painfully aware that there are a lot of people here for whom that image just doesn't work. Whether your own marriage has been so difficult and troubled, or whether you grew up under a marriage that was so difficult and troubled, or whether you have gone to so many wedding receptions and yet still never been the groom or still never been the bride, that you hear the image of a wedding reception and you go, yeah. Well, if the image doesn't work for you, let me ask you, what does? What is the thing or the time where you have said, this is so good 
that I hope it never ends. What's that? I will never forget when my oldest daughter, Callie, was about two years old. We went to the beach. It was probably the second time we'd taken her to the beach. The first time, she wouldn't put her feet on the sand. But the second time was the time she realized you can run as far as you want, as free as you can be. And I have this image that I will never forget of Callie as a two-year-old tearing down the beach, curly hair bouncing behind her, hands clapping in front of her in just utter joy. And I thought, I hope this never ends. What's that for you? Whatever it is, what's that for you? God says, multiply that times a billion and now you're getting a sense of what I've got for you. God says, it's an eternal feast. It's an eternal party. This is why we called our series Made for More, Hungry for More. Because when it comes down to it, all these things, you know, life has a lot of really great things and it also has a lot of really terrible things, right? But when we feel those great things, they are little signposts. They're little hints that remind us we are made for an eternity with this, an eternity with God. And so the important thing is to never let the signpost become the end, right? We went to the beach this summer About 10 miles away, I saw a sign which said beach, arrow that way, 10 miles. Now just think about this for me. If you're going to the beach for a week, would you ever stop at that sign, set up camp, and play there for a week, and then go home? Of course not, right? Because it's a sign. It's pointing you to where you're headed. Well, that's what our joys are here. They are real joys. They are real excitement. They are real wonder, and you don't need to dismiss them. But you also know that if you put your hope in them, they become counterfeits. You don't stop at the sign. You go all the way to the beach. Because every party here does have an end. And there are always tinges of sadness in these things. God says, the reason you feel these things and think, I hope this never ends, is because you were made for it to never end. He says, don't you see the joy I have waiting for you? The end of time is a party. It's a wedding reception that never ends. And if that's the case, I've got a very important question. I want to know who's on the guest list. So look back at the passage with me. Two things about the guest list. First, look at verse 6. This is not the guest list of the elites. This is not the guest list of the people with the education or with the money or with the reputation. If you look at verse 6, you realize it's a guest list that has a huge number of people on it. It is so easy in our world to think, oh, Christianity is this tiny slice of the society we live in these days. God says he is determined to save a huge multitude of people who will be together forever. He says it's like if you're a long way off and you're walking towards it and you hear it, you think you're listening to the ocean waves crashing. You think you're listening to a thunderstorm. And it's only when you get closer you realize it's a whole ocean of people who are just praising God and singing and having a grand time while they do it. God says this is no small invitation list. It's a great multitude of people. And if so, that begs me the question. I want to know all the more, what's it mean to be on it? And this is where verses 8 and 9 come in. Look at them. John, remember, is using poets. He's a poet. He's using pictures. He says, you want to know about the guest list? And he gives you only one piece. He says, this is what they were wearing. He says, the guests were wearing fine linen, bright and clear, given to her to wear. Now, remember, this is an analogy. 
And so just every once in a while, John pulls back the cover and says, let me tell you exactly what I mean so you don't miss it. And this is one of those passages. He goes on and he says, the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, you want to know what gets you on the guest list? It means you're wearing the right clothes. And the right clothes are righteous deeds. Now, if any human being reads reads this, here's our natural default. On the first time, the second time, even the third, the fourth, the fifth time you read this passage, you think, wow, if the thing that gets you into this party, which is a picture of heaven, is good deeds, and by the way, if you read the rest of Revelation 19, you realize the alternative is hell, I really want to make sure I got the right clothes on. I really want to make sure I got the right good deeds on. So you know what? It's time to work on my God balance a little bit. I need to stop doing a few things that really are not so good. I need to start doing some more. I need to show up more. I need to give more. I need to serve more. I need to do all these things so that in the end, I've got the righteous clothes on. Because otherwise, ooh. Now, if that's the way you're unpacking this passage, dwell on this for a second. Let's unpack this and let's, let's process this. If that's the way you're approaching faith then what you are doing is saying, I've got to make sure I'm good enough. And if you do that, here's where that's going to take you. You read the rest of the Bible and it says, let me tell you about what these clothes look like, these righteous deeds. They've got to be spotless and perfect and pure. It means when you get there at the edge of the party and the bouncer's there, the clothes you've got on have to be perfect. And the clothes, remember, are your deeds. So the standard to get into the party is, did it exactly right, perfect no matter what? And if we process that, we start to suddenly realize if that's the way you're going to approach faith, you are stepping on a treadmill, which has heaven in front of you that you can never get to, and hell behind you that you will inevitably get to when you tire out and shoot off the back. Is this the most depressing passage ever in the Bible? Is that what it's saying? Is It's hopeless. Sorry. what's the answer to this? The answer is if you go back to the first word in verse 8. In your ESV translation in the pew, it says it was granted. It's an equally good translation to say it was given. And John says it was given to the people at this banquet to wear the righteous acts of the saints. Now, if you know anything about a gift, by definition, a gift is something that we don't earn, that we don't deserve. In other words, we have to, to get into this banquet, have perfectly righteous clothes on. And Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, no matter how many good things you or I have done, in the end, the Bible says, whatever clothing we walk in, in, however much we dress it up, it's still in the end filthy rags. Because in the end, no matter how much you bring, you don't bring enough. And if you've signed up and if you've been on that treadmill exhausted by your faith, the good news of the gospel is that's not how you get into the kingdom of heaven. You get into the kingdom of heaven when the right clothes are given to you. It was given to them to wear these clothes. So how's that giving happen? How could that be? Well, let me try to give a picture and then try to explain it biblically. It's an imperfect picture, of course, but here's a picture. Um, before I was in ministry, when I was a management consultant, I was in Munich at one point for a project. I'd been there for two weeks. I was going to be able to come back to D.C. for four days for a long weekend, and then I was going to be back there for three more weeks. Um, 
then we had lost a day, so it was going to be a three-day visit to D.C., and then we're at the client, and the meetings run long, and I only have 45 minutes until the last flight is taking off. If I don't catch that flight, I'm only going to be home for a day and a half. It's not worth it. I'm just going to stay, stay there and be there five, more, you know, five weeks total. And I thought, oh, well, I missed it. The airport was about half an hour away. My key client at the, at the client, he says, no, you're going to make your flight. And I looked at him. I said, there's no way I can make that flight. It's half an hour to the airport. And then you've got to get through security. And then gotta, he said, nope. Jump in my car. You're going to make that flight. Now, if you think this is going to be one of those Autobahn 500 miles an hour stories, that's not where this is going. Um, he gets in. We start driving. And he tags his little cell phone button. British Airways immediately answers. And he says, hey, I'm headed to the airport with one of my associates. And his flight leaves in 45 minutes. We're not going to be there for half an hour. So here's what I need you to do. First, I want you to have somebody waiting at the curb, and I want you to set up a special security checkpoint that he can go through on his own so he doesn't get delayed, and then I need you to hold that 777 until he's ready to go. I'm thinking, the airlines don't hold anything for anybody. And then much to my surprise, the voice from British Airways says in perfect British English, okay, sir, we'll have somebody waiting at this side of the airport when you pull up. I went, what have you got on British Airways? Now, I'll tell you another time what he had on British Airways. That's not the point of the story. <clears throat> the point of the story is, do you think they held that 777 for me? It was certainly not my point. It was certainly not my frequent fire balance. It was certainly not my ticket. It was certainly nothing about me that caused this to happen. I got on that plane because of what somebody else had on British Airways, not what I had on British Airways. And so it is with getting into the party that is the kingdom of heaven. You and I do not get in because we've got the right stuff. Here's how it happens. Jesus Christ, fully man, a human being, also fully God, in a way that will forever be slightly mysterious, lives and walks this earth. And for about three decades plus change, he is the only human being who ever lived without sinning. And so Jesus himself can walk up to the gate of that party and they say, the clothes are perfect. The deeds are perfect. You have been completely righteous. Welcome in. Because he's the one who's throwing the party. But then Jesus dies on a cross for you and me. And when he does it, he takes our clothing, our filthy rags on himself and he gives us his pure clothing. Verse 8, it was given to them. So when you walk up to the gate and that bouncer looks at you and says, is the name here? You say, yes, it is. It's the name Jesus Christ, and I'm in him. And so all of his righteousness is given to us, and we are brought in. History is heading to a great, grand, amazing party that will never end. And you and I are invited, and we are invited by the one who threw it, who is the one who purchased the way for us to be there, Jesus Christ himself. And that's where we're going. Now, when Alice had gone down the rabbit hole, after she walked through the wood, walking a little ways, she found the um, Cheshire cat. And a little intimidated, she said, um, Would you tell me, please, which way ought to I go from here? Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. Well, I don't much care where, said Alice. 
Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get um, somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if you only walk long enough. Here's the thing. Every one of us is walking long enough. Every day of life is another step. My question is, what are you walking towards? I want to walk towards this wedding banquet at the end of time. Will you walk with me? Let's pray. God, our Father, we come with excitement and joy and with prayer that you would wake up in us just a tiny hunger for more. That you would inspire us, that you would move our hearts, that we would not be content to be what we've been, but that we would be content to be far more than that. That you would, just as you have in teaching us, in teaching us through your word, that you would also move us through the sacrament to our good and to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.